following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. First Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, um, from 1 to 16, so y'all can follow along. It's a long one, but that's okay. I'll tr- the Lord will help me make it interesting, but it's already interesting. It's the Word of God, so, you know. All right. If you have the Word, say amen. Okay, let's do this. Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. <clears throat> you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and had been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who trusts our hearts. Test our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be burdened to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of our holy righteous and blameless selves. We were among you who believed, or who, we were among you who believed, I apologize. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, in this way they, are all, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. God bless all who hear the reading of the word. So here, here's, here's what I want. As, as just, I don't want us to lose sight of what we talked about in May, um, in, in or April and May. But the one word that is highly important is, is in, I think we have it. Do we have it on the slide, the definition on the slide? Um, it goes back to Mark 8, which we taught in September, which we have to have this idea of denying ourselves and an eternal perspective, or else our current circumstances are going to overwhelm us. I don't want to say that too quickly. If we're not careful, if we aren't aware of what we need to do in denying ourselves, and we don't have an eternal perspective, not just a, like, I'm going to look to next week but I'm actually looking to the future, like what is the promise of God to me that will happen? If we don't do that, we're gonna get way overwhelmed. And that's, so I feel like the joy definition is really gonna help us as we get through 1 Thessalonians. But before we go any farther, I want to take a moment because a lot of what you're, you're hearing in this letter to the Thessalonian church is that 
um, Paul is representing others. Most of his sentences have a plurality to them, like Paul was with others, and they were doing a ministry to them. Paul wasn't doing the ministry by himself. Well, today actually is a, is, is a, a special surprise because 11 years ago this month, the Holman family moved to Baltimore to help us start the church, and we would not be in this room today if it wasn't for the faithful ministry of the Holman family. So I know that he does not like Spotlight, and he wouldn't want me to tell you that he was the high school soccer coach of the year in the state of Georgia, um, or at least in the area, in that, in that region. But the, Robert, would you stand up? And Elijah and Valera. Um, I wish that we had the time this morning um, to go into uh, the full testimony, much like Paul does in this chapter. Um, but this family is a living testimony of 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, the sacrifice, the love, the things that they had to endure, the pressures, the, the, the violence, the, um, the testing that Baltimore has to offer us, this family has tasted all of it. And so if we read their resume of what their faith had to endure here, I promise if you were aware of it, you would listen to them talk to you about their faith differently. And this is what's really happening in this passage. Paul is not just bragging about himself. Can I just say that? Um, it sounds very like, did you not know I did this, 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 but I don't believe that's the tone that Paul is writing. Because if that was the tone that Paul was writing and it wasn't true, do you think they would have continued to read the letter? I mean, think about this. Think about the people in your life that brag on themselves and you know that they're talking about their high school sporting days and it's a long time ago. And, and bragging about high school sports isn't like bragging about playing at the college level or a semi-pro or professional level. Men that brag about what they did in middle school baseball are a problem. Ladies, avoid them, okay? So, um, but when you've been with somebody that has been through it and you've witnessed that they've been through it, when they come back to you and they share with you what it's like to go through it, you listen differently. It's like they earned it. And so I'm grateful to have Robert, Elijah, and Valera here today. Valera just graduated high school. Elijah is well on his way to changing the world um, and just excited about that. So let me, let me go back and review First Thessalonians as I'm swallowing years and years of memories right now um, uh, and trying not to think about it so I don't lose myself. Um, this church in Thessalonica did not come to faith by accident. We talked about this last week. It's very important. It wasn't like we're just hearing about the random movement of God from the cross and the empty tomb forward. The story of the letter to the Thessalonian church in the way Paul writes chapter 1 is that God wanted a people in this region to do an incredible work of his spirit and power in this region. And Paul reminds them at the very beginning, do you not remember what it was like when the conviction of God came upon you? It wasn't normal words. It wasn't just the calling out of um, good news. It was a powerful work of God's spirit in such a way that you heard it and you totally changed your life because of it. And now that Paul has been run away, and he and Silas and his team have been forced out of the region. He's now writing them again, reminding them of what um, they had and the purpose of it. And his way of encouraging them was, you know what, I haven't forgotten you, but not only haven't I haven't forgotten you, I am now doing what for you with great perseverance. What was he doing for them? 
praying for them. All right? I think that we need to grasp this just a little bit because this church was under incredible persecution. The things that Paul, we just heard Peaches read about Paul's life and testimony about the beating and the challenges are now coming full circle for them. They're now going through it. It's a tumultuous time for them. And now he's saying to you, to them, he's saying, I'm praying for you, and I want that to serve as, a, as an encouragement to you. Because he had, in his prayers, it's kind of crazy. It's like Paul is praying and talking at the same time. It's almost like as if he had set a chair for the Lord in their midst, and there's a moment he's talking to the Father, and then he turns to his brothers and sisters, and he comes back, and he does this for three chapters. It's like, okay, wait a minute, now we got to know who's he talking to. Is he talking to dad, or is he talking to his siblings? And so here we come back to the fact that he's looking now at his siblings and saying to them, it is amazing to me the endurance of your faith. It is amazing to me the way that you are being diligent and, and nonstop in your love. And then he's saying, and how you've held on to hope. It sounds a lot like the end of 1 Corinthians 13, how he was encouraging that church. You know, you need to excel at faith, hope, and love, but make sure you excel at love. And so this church, he's saying, you're doing it. Your foundation of faith, hope, and love, you are, you are on it. But they, he was having to say it to them because they were being tested to give it all up. I want you guys to resonate with that because I have a feeling that some of you in this room are going through a test right now, a feeling like that you have to give it all up. And maybe this letter can serve as a reminder to you um, of how much God loves you even in the midst of the storm. And so let me get to that before I get to my ending, which I almost gave away. Um, do we, so the question last week was, is are we displaying the simple signs of life? like our faith, our hope, and our love. When people think about us following Jesus, do they say sentences that say, wow, Ellis has great faith. Ellis excels in love. Ellis has incredible amounts of hope. Would that be something that people would say of you? Because this church, as the way chapter one ended, was that they were now waves and waves of people saying, have you not heard about those people in Thessalonica? Have you not heard about those people in Thessalonica? Have you not heard? And this constant conversation is now spreading, almost like pre-social media. There was this wave of information that was going out. And how much do other people talk about us? So let me come back to this. I do believe that Paul is not just bragging on himself too much here. Um, Paul gets a bad rap. Paul, I think if he was in today's world, would be a hated blogger, but you would love to have dinner with him. Okay, I just, that's the way I view it. It's like anytime he would sit down to type something out in our culture today, you would be like, man, Paul, you're a little bit all up in my face. But then when you're having dinner with him, you'd be like, wow, wait a minute, I like you better in person. I think that's how we would feel about Paul in our culture today. We would love to sit down with Paul and talk to him, but we would not want to get a letter from him. And this is a point of what he's doing here. He's reminding them of what he's been through with him because he's about ready to have to say some really difficult things to them that are going to be really hard for them to obey if they don't have an agreement that God had done a work in them and he wanted to complete the work in them and he was going to be faithful to complete the work. But if he didn't get their ears like, yes, Paul, yes, Paul, we're listening, we would not get through chapters 3, 4, and 5 because there's some incredibly powerful things that are coming. So my thought as a minister, like Paul, like Paul is talking about himself. What would it look like for me if I were to write you and was to talk about my life? If we were to describe ourselves like this, would anyone even recognize who we're talking about? 
So here's, for instance, if, if, we, if I started to just share what my family is doing in Baltimore, but I didn't talk about it in the first person, how far into my story would you be like, who in the world is Ellis even talking about? But Paul was so well known for his faith and what he had endured that the people were tracking with him. And I wonder if for you and I, if you were to talk about your faith, that other people would be like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you went through all that, or I would have never guessed that you had that type of love for Jesus. But Paul is just resonating with these people. Um, when I, Because I want you guys to know, we're not the only culture that has bad preachers. Can I just say that? Um, we're not the only, this is not the first time in generations where there's been bad people leading churches. It's not the first generation where there's been people that have actually used words about God to make themselves wealthy or to cause a living for themselves or to self-promote or to seek power, have lording authority over people. Not the first generation. So let's just get past that. In Paul's generation, imagine Paul is a guest preacher in Thessalonica talking about a resurrected Jesus at a time where there were numerous evangelists about different gods showing up to town. He was not the first to be the one showing up and saying, let me talk to you about a new God. And by the way, would you please give, you know. And then who was he meeting with? And they would have been evaluating him. And so when he's writing chapter two, the people are like, yes, you're faithful. Yes, you're trustworthy. Yes, yes, yes. When we first moved here, and Robert almost could go back and retell this story with me. Even Bob might even remember. There was a lady at Life of Riley's who came up to me when we weren't even a church yet. We were just meeting dinner, having dinner, and then eventually we started having dinner and doing like a Bible study in the party room upstairs, and we invited people to come and participate in that. But there were a group of people that didn't want to come. They would always meet me at the door of Life of Riley's. They'd be eating dinner, and they'd say, Ellis, sit down here for a minute. And sometimes they would sarcastically say, pastor or preacher, sit down here. And But this one lady said, I know why you came to our neighborhood. And I said, why? She goes, because you want our money. And I'm like, I mean, at that point in time, I mean, it was just my wife and kids that were giving, um, and, uh, <laughs> and I wasn't really doing it for the money, um, and we were there, but I, I had no credibility, because at that point in time, it was just the first few times we're meeting people, but it wasn't until my daughter got, was playing in the playground with kids after school, and a drug needle got stuck in her finger, and I carried her from my house in Butcher's Hill all the way to the ER at Hopkins, which is, that sounds like a long ways, but when you're out of shape like me, three or four blocks is a long ways. Um, but I carried her in my arms there, and in the process of that, word started spreading through the neighborhood. And from that point forward, every time I walked in, people weren't criticizing me anymore. They were like, what, we don't want you to move. Are you leaving? When are you leaving the neighborhood? Conversation shifted because they watched me go through a trouble. They watched how my family loved. I, I promise you, for three days, and Robert can give you testimony of this, my family closed the blinds to our house, and for three days we didn't come out. We prayed like, God, where did you take us? What are we doing here? Why are we in Baltimore? Why could I not have been invited to, like, West Palm Beach? Um, <laughs> You know, there could have been other places where the church could thrive, Lord. Why, why Baltimore? Why here? Why Butcher's Hill? Why Hopkins Community? Why this? You know, and I, we did for three days. We, it was all God. God was like, man, I'm tired of the whining, you know, the whining. Did you hear that? Um, and so um, 
it was just not, it was one why after another why after another why, and we just did that. But eventually on the third day, we raised our blinds, we stepped outside, and we just said, okay, Lord, um, we know that you gave up much for our salvation. Our family's willing to give up much for the salvation of others, and we kept moving forward with others that we're also sacrificing. And what we need in our life is what I believe Paul is saying here, is that we have got to have words and actions that line up. And so Paul is using his words and his actions to say to them, it's, it's about our words and it's also about our actions. And as we get to the whole point of the summary of verses 1 through 12, I came across a poem this week, but I couldn't find the author of it. So I'm going to say it and not give credit. I'm just going to say unknown, but I put, had, um, had it placed on a slide for you. So here's the poetry. It says, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one would walk with me than merely show the way. The eyes a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but examples are always clear. And this is what I believe is what Paul is saying. And the poetry of this chapter, I believe, is a reflection of what Paul is saying to the Thessalonica, to church in Thessalonica. They were seeing him. He was like, imitation like the word imitator is in here and you can't it's like this if those of you that follow me on social media this week i posted a picture of my hand on a book as another man i was talking to his hand on a book but then you see this little boy's hand slide in and put his hand on the book and the entire time i was talking to this man and his child the child was circling the table but eventually sat at the table climbed up in a chair next to his dad and anytime his dad would rub his hands on the table to talk because some men when they're getting passionate they have to use their hands to talk I think women do it too, but I, I don't want to give an example about women and then pay for it through email this week. Um, <laughs> but men talk with their hands, and so every time he would make a circle on the table, his son would make a circle on the table, and every time he would tap the table, his son would tap the table louder and more often. Um, but he just kept making, every time he would see his dad talk, he would make noises and try to talk, and, and then eventually we were looking at an illustration in a book, and, and he saw his dad in our, our hands, and he wanted to imitate it, and so he had no idea what he was putting his hands on. He just wanted to imitate what he saw two men doing around the table, and if I can say this to the church, that's what the community's desperate for. They're tired of our words. They want to imitate us. But right now, are we worth imitating? Are the things that we're doing worth imitating? Are the things that I do with my wife worth imitating? Are the things I do with my kids worth imitating? Are the things I do with my neighbors worth imitating? Are the things that we do with each other worth imitating? This is what I believe Paul is getting at here in 1 Thessalonians 2. And then at the very end, it's just, it's a solemn and serious passage. Um, I haven't been out in the mountains too much. I, I, some, I, I have to admit, many of you have been hiking recently, and I'm jealous. I would love to go on a hike with you, but I don't want to do the ones that are like this, okay? I need to, you know, uh, you know a little, little hike. But some of you are hiking to things, and I'm like, number one, my knees would be shaking because it's way too high. But one time I was in West Virginia on a family vacation, and we were in what's called the Canaan Valley, and we were driving up a mountain, and it was nice on our side of the mountain, and when we got to the top overlook and pulled off, we, we could immediately crested the mountain, and there was this mammoth dark cloud 
I don't know if any of you guys have ever noticed that the mountains sometimes hold back a storm for a little bit before it gains enough energy to cross over. But within 15 minutes, it was pouring down snow. It was nice on the way up. And next thing you know, I mean, we couldn't turn around and get down the mountain fast enough. I mean, it was just coming. Like we caught the top of the mountain at the same time that this massive storm was coming over the mountain. And so we literally had to just buckle in. I had to switch my vehicle into four-wheel drive mode, and we had to go much slower pace than we had been going before. I believe that that's a little bit of what it feels like here for this church in Thessalonica. They had Paul for three weeks, and numbers and numbers and numbers and numbers of Jews and Gentiles were coming to faith. And they were like, wow, this is amazing. We now have peace in our hearts because of Jesus. But then they got to this epic peak of like, yes, this is great. And they looked, and there's this dark cloud immediately in front of them. No chance to get out of the way before trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble just kept coming, so much so that their leaders were rushed out. They were left leaderless in trouble. And then their leader now is now writing them a letter back saying, I know I left you in the middle of a storm. And I love the encouragement here at the very end because what I believe he's doing here in a powerful way speaks volumes to all of us that are in trouble. If, if you are in trouble, this passage should encourage you that the Lord doesn't leave you in trouble. Psalms chapter 34, even the Jewish people had roots in the truth that even though we believe God, we fear God, and we exalt his name together, and we've tasted and seen that God is good, when troubles come, which they do, Psalms 34 ends with, God will get you through. Amen. The problem is, is that you and I many times have a hope that he'll get us through. Well, we, we excel at loving each other, but we don't have faith to look into a dark cloud. And as soon as we bump up against something terrible or hard or difficult that literally does break you and get you down to your knees, you, you're like, it must not be true. Even though you've tasted that it's true, even though you've experienced the love of God, if we're not continually protecting the foundation of our faith when the storms come, we're in trouble. Why do you think Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount with a parable about feet being placed on rock and not sand? Because the storms are going to come, and if our feet aren't firmly planted on a rock, we're going to be in real trouble. But the trouble doesn't mean that something's gone bad or terribly wrong with God's plan. I, I, we, we, that's, a, that's, a, that's a foundational stone of our faith. Just because you and I face illnesses or poverty or troubles in relationships or whatever it might be isn't a statement that God's plan is failing. It is what I believe, what Paul was saying, and we're going to hear more of in the coming chapters, that we are sharing in the suffering of Christ, but we are truly going to be vindicated like Christ. Right? Could you imagine the power and the joy of that first breath that Christ breathed in the tomb? We don't think about that very often. But whatever was happening with Jesus after the crucifixion, God wasn't done yet. And he did it. It was, it was completed when Christ came up out of the tomb 
and there was this, he had a body that could go through walls. He could be walking down the Emmaus Road and have dinner with somebody and immediately be back in Jerusalem. I mean, he was the inventor of beam me up. Like, it's just crazy what he was able to do with his resurrected body and the power in which he was able to teach and move in people's hearts so they were stirred. But that first breath that Jesus breathed coming back up, I think we downplay it because we're like, oh yeah, he's the son of God. No, he was our example in flesh as the son of God. And everything that happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. We are going to experience a resurrection. There is going to be new life. There is going to be a freedom from the brokenness that has attacked our bodies. And that is a promise to all of us who believe. And Paul is saying to this church, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know that it's hard. Your faith is being tested, but God will vindicate us in his time. And he uses some powerful illustrations. And if we were Jewish, I wouldn't have to explain any of it. It would immediately come to you. But he goes back to three sections in Jewish teachings where it was very, very recent. He's talking to them about the persecution of the church in Jerusalem by other Jews and Romans because he's like, look, I'm here because they didn't want the Gentiles to know about Jesus. And we were being persecuted by the church as well as by Rome. And oh, that was very present. Then he goes back and says that, well, they, they were the ones that crucified Jesus and then he goes back and says, oh, by the way, the, the tradition has been anytime a prophet would speak, they would reject the prophet. And, you, and then he talks about their sins were built up and then God's wrath. And that has been many ways, I think, mispreached and, and misspoken in a lot of ways that doesn't make good sense of Old Testament teaching in the light of the New Testament. But this is what I want you guys to understand. God will make things right one day. Amen. He will. And if you are not in the right, you're going to have to deal with that. That's a fact, is that we will stand before of God that is just and merciful and kind and will, 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 will not leave anything unpunished. And because of Jesus, we get exempted from all of that. Like it's, it's, we, don't, we don't have to step into that. And what Paul is saying to this church is, you see how all of these people have been hurt and persecuted and how their sins built up and God dealt with it. Their sins built up and God dealt with it. Their sins built up and God dealt with it. It is still going to be dealt with, but one day in Christ, we're going to be able to stand in front of him and he's just going to welcome us and put a robe over us. He's going to give us a crown there's so much language about what's coming in our hope that is found in this passage. And I just want to say to us as a church today, can we endure? Can we not just have words about God, but can we say to people, my life is worth imitating? My life is worth imitating. That's, what the, that's, that's the level at which Paul wanted the Thessalonica church to excel. He didn't want them to just know about Jesus. He wanted to create people that were worth imitating. And he was saying to them, you're imitating me, so now let other people now imitate you. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I just ask that your spirit would um, just confirm what's true in our hearts like you did in Thessalonia, in this Thessalonica region, Lord. And um, Father, would you strengthen our faith, um, 
Would you give us the endurance for that? Father, would you continue to help us to keep our eyes eternally focused on the hope, Lord? You are going to vindicate us, and it's in our suffering like Christ that you're doing a mighty work in this world. Father, would you help us to be able to put the pieces together this summer in the story of this church so that our church can be a church worth imitate, imitating? Father, we want, we want to be an example to others of what being like Christ looks like in our world today. And so, Father, would you continue to help us with that? Father, we want to press towards you. We don't want anything to discourage us. But, Father, for those this morning that are weary, would you give them strength? For those that are confused, would you give them clarity? For those that feel like they're in a dry and desert land, would you please bring them fresh water? Father, for those that are sick, would you please bring healing? Father, for those, Lord, that um, are in need, Father, would you continue to show us how to meet needs? And would you meet those needs, Lord? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we're going to respond like we normally do at this time. So if you're a guest of ours, we always have the Lord's table at the end of our gathering as a form of response. But I don't want us to just get caught in the ritual of our response. We have people that can pray for you. If you are in need, you can be prayed over. If you want to give your life to Christ, there are people here that will be happy to pray with you and encourage you in that. But the rest of us, like, let's, let's come to the table and remind each other of the great love of God. Let's come to the table and look each other in the face and and use it as today, let the mentality of saying his body was broken and this is his cup that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins as our way of saying to one another, let's be worth imitating. We're trying to imitate Christ and now we're trying to imitate each other as we're coming to the table that it would cause a ripple effect of imitation where we're leaving imitating Jesus and we're now leaving and people can imitate us because we're imitating Jesus. And before long, every street of our city has imitators of Christ on it where people don't have to come to a building to see what Jesus would be like. They can taste and see it in their own neighborhood. They can experience the body broken and the blood poured out for them on every street in our neighborhood. And and others of you, I just want to encourage you, one of the faithful ways that we can respond is through joyous giving. This is also a time where you can go to the offering box and leave an offering or go give through the app if you are technologically savvy and you want to do that. Um, But this is a way for us to respond through giving as well. So would you stand? We're going to do two songs that are going to close out our time together this morning. And when you're ready, come to the table.